Welcome to the weekly Comic Web Old Time Radio Program podcast. We sell old time radio programs, Golden Age comics in PDF format, and we have other free podcasts. Visit comicweb.com for more information or find us on Facebook and iTunes. This week our podcast features an episode of Information Please, a trivia game show with guest star Elliot Roosevelt. It first aired on July 11th, 1939. Information Please, presented each week at this time by Canada Dry, famous the world over for its fine beverages. Wake up, America. Time to stump the experts and treat yourself to a glass of cool, refreshing Canada Dry ginger ale. Every week at this time, Canada Dry presents Information, Please. You send us questions that you think we cannot answer, and we'll provide you with four experts who will do their darndest to show you you're wrong. You may submit from one to three original questions. For every question our quartet fails to answer, the sender gets $10 with the compliments of Canada Dry. For every question we use, whether or not it's answered correctly, the sender gets $5. So you can make $15 if our experts miss out, which they occasionally do. Our editorial staff may reword your question a trifle. Please don't worry about it. And whenever there is a duplication of questions, Information Please uses the one that was submitted first. All questions become the property of Information Please and should be addressed to Canada Dry, 1 Pershing Square, New York City. And now, may I present our Master of Ceremonies, Mr. Clifton Fadiman, literary critic of the New Yorker magazine. Mr. Fadiman. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, information, please, uncabined, uncribbed, and unconfined, pursues its inquisitorial career. As you know, the questions we use have not been seen by any of the experts in advance, as their answers occasionally demonstrate. Now, seated opposite me this evening is a quartet of scintillating intelligences. They include three regulars, Oscar Levant, pianist and composer who knows a tidy bit unconnected with music, and may I add that Mr. Levant added last night to his laurels by appearing and playing very brilliantly at the Gershwin Memorial Concert at the Lewiston Stadium. Then we have Franklin P. Adams, conductor of the famous Conning Tower in the New York Post, and John Curran, sports authority and inexhaustible fountain of wisdom. Our guest of honor this evening is a person who would have made his mark on our times, even if he were not the son of the President of the United States. Elliot Roosevelt has already made his way to the top in the field of radio, and uh, we like to think that he's crowning an energetic career with his appearance tonight on Information Plate. He appears through the courtesy of Emerson Radios, world's largest manufacturer of small radios. Now, should these four geniuses miss a question, Canada Dry is happy to pay out $10 to the sender, plus $5 for the use of the question itself. If you gentlemen are all ready, we'll start uh, with a question... <coughs> Very simple indeed, coming from H. Daniels of Des Moines, Iowa. I'm going to ask you to identify the following well-known persons, there are four of them, by their first and middle names. I'll give you the first and middle names. The first is Alan Roy. Alan Roy, who is that? Uh, Mr. Levant. Alan Roy, I spell D-A-F-O-E. Alan Roy Defoe, who is he? He uh, delivered some kids in Canada. Yeah, yeah. It just occurred to you, didn't it, Mr. Levant? Dr. Defoe, together with our sponsors, helped make Canada famous, of course. John uh, Davison. John Davison. Uh, Mr. Roosevelt. Rockefeller. John Davison Rockefeller, yes. Frank Winfield. Frank Winfield. Is that his last name? Those are his first two names. Well, he could stop at Winfield. He could stop at Winfield, Mr. Levant. That's quite true, but he didn't. If he'd stopped at Winfield, he wouldn't have been quite as well known as he turned out to be, because the answer is Frank Winfield Woolworth. 
Frank Winfield. You haven't uh, heard of Frank W. Woolworth, Mr. Levant. F. W. Woolworth. Oh, I know him, no. He never buys anything below a dime, Mr. Levant, apparently. Uh, one wrong on that. Uh, Paul Vores, that's V-O-R-I-E-S. Uh, Mr. Levant. Uh, McNutt. McNutt. Who is Paul Vores? I think he's an ex-governor of Indiana. And, uh, is that right, Mr. Roosevelt? Is that right, Mr. Roosevelt? Well, I've heard tell that he had some post in the government, but I think he got another post just the other day. <laughs> You're so far in politics, Mr. Roosevelt. I've never heard a more cautious reply. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got, uh, three out of four, but Mr. Daniels wanted us to get four out of four, so Kendra Dry will pay ten dollars out to him, plus five dollars for the use of the question. Let's see what we can do with the next one. You can just play around with this. Uh, Mrs. G.B. Mead, Jr., of Montclair, New Jersey, wants you to give five common expressions in which a measure of length is mentioned. Uh, metaphorically, for example, one might say one foot in the grave. Uh, Mr. Adams. A miss is as good as a mile. A miss is as good as a mile. Very good. That's one. Uh, Mr. Levant. Solid fellow. Two feet on the ground. Two feet on the ground. Very Three good. Three feet on the ground. All right. Very good. Solid fellow. That's two. Uh, Mr. Adams again. Give him an inch and he'll take an L. Yes. How long is an L, Mr. Adams? Forty-five inches. No, it's twenty-seven inches to forty-eight, according to the country in which it's used. No one knows exactly how long an L is. Uh, Mr. Levant. The meter is empty. <laughs> the meter is empty. <laughs> fill her up. Fill her up that's with gas. all right. I call that a very good gas indeed, Mr. Levant. Very good. <laughs> all right, that's four. We need one more. I'll give you one containing two of them. I love you, dear, but not for long. How about that, Mr. Adams? Let right. that go, Mr. Adams. I don't want to play in your yard. Oh, <laughs> that's fine. Hope Mrs. Mead is satisfied with uh, these measures of length. Uh, C. Wilkins of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, asked a question about uh, some recent occurrences in the news. Now, Mr. Rose, will you follow the news to some extent? Well, I try to read as little as I possibly can, but I have to do it in order to earn a living. Yes, well, that's why I guess the news follows him. (laughs) Nice, nice. Well, that wasn't a very nice remark. Pretty good. (laughs) We'll have you both on the program again. Now, if you just break up that friendship, uh, we'll go on and try to figure out the following. Explain how the following figured in the news recently. There are four hints that I'm going to give you. You have to get three out of four. 130 hours. 130 hours. What does that mean to any of you? Around the world, 130 hours. I'm uh, kidding. That's not a guess. Uh, no, no, I know that. That was just, you were just encouraging us, Mr. Levant. 130 hours. It's been in the news considerably. There's been a, uh, Mr. Kieran. I'll take a guess. Go ahead, Mr. Kieran. Uh, to Europe and back by that new plane. Awfully sorry. The answer is wrong. You could go 15 How long times that take? Uh, we might hours. get to it. There's is been a strike of WTA that, workers because the new relief act provides that they work at least 130 hours a month. Is that right, Mr. Roosevelt? Yes. All right. Wrong on that. Now, you've got to get the next three without any error. Thirty-four senators. Thirty-four senators, which makes a very pretty picture. Thirty-four senators. Mr. Levant. I don't know. Is that the old uh, baseball team in Washington before the 25-player rule? (laughs) (laughs) Can't let it go, Mr. Levant. Mr. Levant, again? That's a neutrality. That's a guess. Go ahead. You said the word neutrality. What do you mean? Mr. Roosevelt can help me out now. He can, but he's not allowed. Why not? You have to give the answer all by yourself, all by your lonesome, Mr. Levant. Well, I retrench. You're all right so far. <laughs> well, what do I know about neutrality? <laughs> uh, Mr. Roosevelt? It's the 34 senators who uh, had a very private meeting and didn't tell the press that they were banding together to fight against the president having these new powers on neutrality. 
Uh, yes, that's one way of putting it. They're going to appeal, oppose repeal or modification of the present neutrality law. Uh, quite correct, Mr. Roosevelt. Now, suppose I say 27 hours, 20 minutes. What do that, those numerals mean? Mr. That was the clipper that went to England in 130 hours. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> by care and measurement. I, uh, spoke, I spoke too soon. <laughs> well, you just doubled, or, or more than that. You, you can go to California that five times. Just about, Mr. Roosevelt. Now, suppose I say five games. What does that mean to you? Five games. Mr. Levant. The Yankees just dropped. Hooray. Five games to the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> That's very nasty. Well, <laughs> oh, it's tiresome when they don't. Uh, Mo <laughs> Berg is here anyway. Mo Berg here tonight? Yeah, he's here tonight. Well, we like to say that. Then five straight games won by the Boston Red Sox from the New York Yankees. And, Mr. Kieran, what has happened to the Yankees? Uh, about those five games, Mo yeah. Berg helped greatly by keeping out of the way. <laughs> I hope Mo Berg has heard that. Uh... Why, why have the Yankees been in this slump, Mr. Kerr? Any special theories? No candidates. Whatever goes up must come down. It's a rule of physics. That's all there is to it. Okay, we got three out of uh, four, and that's what we were supposed to get. Next question. From Arthur Henderson of Tucson, Arizona. Now, you may remember in Mark Twain's novel, Huckleberry Finn, that Huck Finn came back to the house of Mrs. Judith Loftus, disguised as a girl. And Mrs. Loftus was trying to find out uh, whether that disguise could be penetrated or not. And she asked him three questions. And he answered the first two questions correctly and the third incorrectly. When a cow's laying down, which end of her gets up first? What did Huck Finn reply to that? Mr. Kieran. Uh, Huck said the hind end got up first. That's right. The hind, or would you call it the other end, Mr. Oh, no. <laughs> uh... If, uh, another question about cows that Mrs. Loftus asked Huck Finn. If 15 cows is browsing on a hillside, how many of them eats with their heads pointed in the same direction? Kieran again. All of them. Uh, yes, he replied the whole 15. Quite correct. Now, the third question Huck Finn could not answer correctly. And so Mrs. Loftus penetrated his disguise. How does a woman thread a needle differently from a man? Mr. Kieran again, our Huck Finn expert. Uh, well, the difference is, uh, that uh, Get it right. one sex holds the needle and brings the thread up to it, and the other sex uh, which one? Holds, well, uh, you got me all mixed up among my sexes. I don't remember. But you know I who the think, what the sexes minute, are? I think that the right, woman holds the uh, thread and brings the needle up to it. It depends on the sex of the needle. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mister Levant. Will you let me have that again, Mister Kieran? You're thinking of Cleopatra's needle. I think that the uh, woman holds the thread still and brings the needle up to it. She holds the thread still and brings the needle up to it. No, she pokes the thread at the needle. Well, she that's the way the I do, and I'm not a woman. <laughs> that's the way I do. Well, that's the point, you see. You, uh, you do well, it as a fretter. No, I do it as you say the lady does it. Well, that's what Mrs. Loftus said. A woman pokes the thread at the needle, and a man always does the other way. We have reached an impasse. I think we better just skip <laughs> on to the next question. We were supposed to get two out of three on that, and uh, we did, thanks to Mr. Cure. Two out of three in an empire. But that isn't how she found out that... Uh, how did she, then? That he yeah. wasn't a, a girl. I don't remember she the... She tossed something thing. at his lap. And she threw an apple And he his closed lap. his knees. And that proved... That proved that he was a boy, because a boy doesn't usually have skirts down there that'll catch anything. Tricky. That's very good. That's very good. <laughs> that's right. The next question from Leon Cullen Quinn, Jr. of New London, Connecticut had to do with motion pictures. And the following three incidents, which have to do with current motion pictures, are all about animals. I've got a couple of dogs here and a horse. 
A young woman is trying to climb a wall, and she's bitten in the ankle by a dog. From what motion picture does that incident uh, come? Mr. Roosevelt. I ought to know. That's the picture my brother helped make, Wuthering Heights. Oh, you boys uh, play together, do you? Oh, yes, that same back door. I thought he didn't like pictures. Which one? Mr. Roosevelt. He had to like I don't. Oh, don't commit yourself, Mr. Roosevelt. Never commit yourself. Uh, a young woman rides a horse into a hurdle instead of jumping over it. Mr. Levant. That's Betty Davis in Dark Victory. Yes, in Dark Victory. A young man is attacked by a dog while returning from a girl's house and is rescued by a detective. Was it her father? Uh, I don't know. I didn't see this picture myself. Shall I go over that whole story again yes, about please. the young man who's attacked by a dog while returning from a girl's house and he's rescued by a detective? have to get all three on this. Sorry, it's from the Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, that will cost Canada Dry $10 going out to Mr. Callan Quinn of New London, plus $5 for the use of the question. Here's another from N. Simpson of Brooklyn, New York. The following sentences appeared in newspapers recently. I'm going to ask you simply to identify the author of them. Here's the first uh, sentence. It is that fact that we live by the will of the majority which makes our government different from any other form of government. And here's the second sentence. How can we lose heart when all we really need is unity of spirit and a determination to find a way to share our wealth? Uh, the author of those two sentences, uh, Mr. Levant. President Roosevelt. I'll be sorry. Well, it was courteous anyway. Uh, it was nice. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well, Mr. Roosevelt, I hope for your sake that your mother is not listening in at the present moment. The author of those two sentences is Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> and the two sentences appeared in her rather well-known column, apparently read by everybody but her son. Uh, my day. You see where I, the where I live, the, they don't have that column. Why don't you move? You want to move? <laughs> Why well, I've been trying try. to lately. <laughs> Well, it's a wise child that can quote to his own mother, Mr. Roosevelt. We ought to excuse you, I suppose. Uh, there's another $10 going out to Mr. Simpson of Brooklyn, New York. And a little finger edition reveals that already Canada Dry has uncomplainingly paid out $30 to well, those who have dropped home time. ahead of our experts. And now a moment with Mr. Milton Cross. Thank you, Mr. Fadiman. Everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. There's an amusing line that our experts might possibly have whipped up if Mark Twain hadn't beaten them to it a long time ago. Now, we still can't do anything about the weather itself, but fortunately, we've learned how to make summer heat more bearable. We've discovered that a tall glass of ice-cold ginger ale smooths the temper and cools the body. And the majority of us have found that the most pleasing ginger ale of all is Canada Dry. For Canada Dry has all the delicious qualities that we could demand. From the time the carefully selected ginger comes from the island of Jamaica to that pleasant moment when you lift a cool, sparkling glassful to your lips, Canada Dry has been carried through a score of scientific processes, all designed to make it the finest ginger ale available to the thirsty men, women, and children of the world. And Canada Dry supplies quick energy, refreshes inwardly, and aids digestion. So when you're in need of refreshment, always specify Canada Dry. The Champagne of Ginger Ale. Cross, your brief essay in praise of Canada Dry was read in exactly 61 seconds. You ought to have locked off that extra second, Mr. Cross. Uh, the next question from Eva May Butcher of Homewood, Illinois. Has to do is about fictional characters. 
What fictional characters do the following descriptions apply? These are all fairly well known. But oh, what a clammy hand his was, as ghostly to the touch as to the sight. Describes whom? Mr. Adams. Uriah Heep. Uriah Heep and David Copperfield. Absolutely right. We've got to get three out of four on this. I was now beginning to grow handsome. My coat had grown fine and soft and was bright black. Uh, Mr. Curran. A black beauty. Black beauty. Yes, by whom? Oh, it's a woman. I've forgotten her name. Edna uh, Sewell. Edna Sewell, Mr. Adams. Thank you. Uh, his left leg was cut off close by the hip. And under the left shoulder, he carried a crutch. Who was that? Tiny Tim when he grew up. <laughs> Big uh, it's a partial Tim. description. I think you're being jocose, Mr. Levat, at least I hope so. Certainly. Uh, Mr. Kieran? Long John Silver. Long John Silver, yes. Treasure Island. His head was small and flat at the top, with huge ears, large green glassy eyes, and a long snipped nose. Sounds like after you get through fighting Joe Lewis. <laughs> Not after I get through fighting Joe Lewis. There wouldn't even be that much left of me, Mr. Levat. The uh, answer is, we're all right on this question. We've got three out of four. It's a very famous story, very famous character. The story is The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving, and the character described as Ichabod Crane. Remember that, Mr. Adams? Oh. Don't remember. <laughs> the uh, next one comes from Jay Myers of South Pasadena, California. Identify the following overtures which the pianist is going to play to us. Uh, let's have the first. There are four of them all together. It's by Von Weber. I hope it's Oberon. It is. Don't go any further. Don't go any further. No, not Der Freischutz. I said I sometimes mix it up with Der Freischutz. Oberon is absolutely right. Let's have the second. Mr. Levant again. I don't know the name. I know the composer. He wrote about a million overtures. It's Rossini, and all his names are unpronounceable outside of William Tell. And it isn't William Tell. And it isn't William Tell. Well, that leaves us practically only with Sonoramus, which is well, the correct I answer. Well, I wouldn't know that. I know it's... Uh, suppose I'll give you 50% on that. Will you take 50%? I'll take 30. I don't care. All right. <laughs> take up the marbles, Mr. Levant. Let's have the third. Oh, Mr. Levant again. Leonor by Beethoven. Uh, Leonor, yes. Number uh, three, Beethoven, I think. Number three, that's right. I'm also glad those teeth of yours aren't removable. I'd love to hear you whistle through them. <laughs> uh, fourth and last. Okay, Mr. Levant. Mr. Adams, I know that. That's Rienzi. That's your style. By Wagner. Wagner. Did you know that, Mr. Adams? That is not my style. <laughs> <laughs> now those boys are fighting again. <laughs> Three and a half out of a possible fourth, Mr. Levant. Who almost always gets these right on the nose. Let's try the next one. From T. Lawrence of Philadelphia. Now, you know, reporters have a way of shortening their dispatches using a kind of telegraph ease. Uh, if the following message was sent to a city editor by a reporter, could you identify the recent news items that are mentioned in the dispatch? He's using very, very abbreviated, shortened language. Child skeleton found on steps. Congress considers self-liquidation. Doesn't sound like a bad idea. Sit down on golf course and high silver. Now, that means absolutely nothing for the first 30 seconds. Uh, Mr. Levant, the first, the first sentence, child skeleton found on steps. You better stop there for about five Yes, and minutes. I know that Mr. Adams is eager to tell me that it's a steps child, aren't you, Mr. Adams? <laughs> no. No. All right, Mr. Mr. Levant. Suppose we spell steps with two P's yes, and E and an F. Russian steps. Well, right. the anthropologist discovered a big baby uh, Neanderthal. <laughs> I don't know his name, and it's uh, Eurasia. It's quite far east. Well, I don't think they had names in the Neanderthal. A cute kid, a Neanderthal skeleton. 
Uh, yes, that's exactly right. Uh, Dr. A.P. Okwadnikov, as practically anybody would know, <laughs> uh, discovered a skeleton of Neanderthal man on a cliff in Middle Asia. Just what either of them was doing on that cliff in Middle Asia, in Middle Asia, we don't know. Terrorist now, God. the next is uh, Congress considers self-liquidation, which does not mean liquidation of Congress. Congress considers Mr. Roosevelt. Uh, the self-liquidating uh, revolving fund that the president sent to Congress, I believe that's what they're referring to. That's exactly it. Uh, we provide for federal loans. For yeah, build projects. toll roads somewhere or other. Yes, from one point to another, we might say. Uh -huh. yeah, just to make it definite. Yeah, just across other roads. Uh, the third brief sentence that this uh, reporter sent into the city editor was sit down on golf course. Uh, Mr. Kieran, our golf expert. The uh, PGA Championship at the Pomonok, uh, Pomonok uh, Country Club uh, was a threatened strike there unless Denny Shute could play. Well, why did they strike? Uh, well, because he was barred, his uh, check for his dues didn't come in until it was 48 hours late, late so they yeah. struck, and then he was allowed to play. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the uh, last is High Silver. Not to be confused with a well-known radio cry, uh, Mr. Kieran. Uh, uh, in a recent act of Congress on a monetary matter, uh, the price of... Uh, I don't know whether it was permissive to the president or what, but anyhow, the price of silver yeah. uh, paid out by the Treasury went up considerably. Yes. I don't remember the exact uh, up to 77, Mr. Roosevelt? Up to 77 cents from, I believe, 70 point something. Uh, my figures uh, conflict with yours, but it's very probable that you're right. I have 64.64 uh, to 71.11. Well, uh, I'm I sure that correct. you're right. I'm not too sure. All I've got uh, down here is on a card. The card may be lying. One can never tell. Uh, four out of four on that. Very good, I think. The next one from John F. Cordell of South Bend, Indiana. This simply has to do with your knowledge of words. I want you to convert the following nouns into their respective adjectives. For example, uh, the word bishop, if we made an adjective out of it, would be what? What adjective do we get from the word bishop? Meaning of or pertaining to a bishop. Well, the answer is episcopal. I thought you'd all know that. That's why I gave it to you as an example. Episcopal has to do with a bishop. I still don't know that. Uh, you don't know I it don't yet, Mr. Van? Well, I can't repeat it. Uh, the <clears throat> now, suppose we wanted to make an adjective out of the very well-known word sheriff. What would the proper adjective of or pertaining to a sheriff? Uh, Mr. Kieran? Well, there's a word, uh, shrivalty. Uh, just leave out the T and you're all right. Shrivel, that's quite Shri correct. Shrivel. Yes, Jim Farley once had shrivel duties. That's, a... that's the way you can remember that, Mr. Levant. Now, what adjective could we make out of mourning? Of or pertaining to mourning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G. Mr. Adams. Matutinal or matutinal? A matutinal is quite correct. Matutinal coming from, what's the derivation of matutinal? Well, it comes from uh, the Roman goddess of mourning, Matuta. Matuta, Mr. Kieran? We also have matinal. That's used, too. That could be used just as well. I don't think you'll find it in any but a large dictionary, but it's very possible. There's a song called correct. Matinata, a very famous Italian song. Glad to get that contribution from you, Mr. Levant. Thank you. Now, week. <laughs> W-E-E-K. Of course, the answer is weekly, but I mean another word, Mr. Adams. Hebdomadal. 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 H-E-B-D-O-M-A-D-L. Swallow that one. And uh, fourth and last, uncle. What adjective is derived from uncle, Mr. Kieran? Avuncular. Avuncular. Now, Mr. Kieran, what adjective would be derived from aunt? Uncle's opposite number. Miss Avuncular. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Avuncular, says Mr. Levant, thus coining an imperishable word. 
I don't know what the answer I is. Can't think. I don't know what. I don't think there is a word. Ava pretending to an ant. The uh, Latin for ant, Mr. Kieran, would be what? They didn't have ants in Latin. Oh yes, they had some ants in the old world. I, I don't Roman ants. Oh yes, <laughs> Latin term marks certainly. Uh, amita, A M I T A, meant a father sister. So I suppose we could coin a word. Amital, which would have to do with that. So it's information, please, contributes the words of language. Free of charge. Sodium amital. Yes. Yeah. Sodium amital. Go to the ant. Sorry that Mr. Cordell couldn't stick us on those. We did very well. Identify the following characters from literature. Miss Helene Myers of East Cleveland wants you to do this. Uh, this is all about marriage, gentlemen. What characters were separated on their wedding day and reunited when they were old? Situation that has its points. Uh, Mr. Kira. On their wedding day? Yes, you know, a uh, wedding day. They were separated on their wedding day. Evangel- and reunited when they were Evangeline. old. Evangeline. Evangeline and uh, the man in the case. Uh, Mr. Adams? Gabriel Gabe. Bellafontaine. Goodness gracious, how did you remember all that, Mr. Adams? Had a town in Ohio named after it. <laughs> they have their own ways of remembering things, folks. I don't know how they do it. That's quite right. Evangeline Gabriel from Longfellow's poem, Evangeline. Whose wife took a six-month leave of her husband every year of their married life? Thought of Reno on the installment plan. Mr. Curran. Uh, that's in uh, Greek mythology. Right, uh, right. Take it out of Greek mythology and let us have it. I think Kieran. it's Persephone. Yes. Uh, what's the story? Uh, the story of uh, uh, springtime returning to the earth, and then she goes back to the lower regions, and then we have fall and winter. Yes. She, she was the wife during those six months of whom? Pluto. Pluto, yes. The god of the underworld. This is not an advertisement. <laughs> Might call it a discourtesy line, Mr. Jaron. What character married when she was uh, over a hundred years old? Let's get two out of three. This is the third. Did the marriage last? Uh, you know, it doesn't say, Mr. Levant. Doesn't say. What right. character married when she was over a hundred years old? Mrs. Moonlight. I don't think Mrs. Moonlight. No. Isn't the Bible? No, it isn't from the Bible. So you're all right, Mr. Adams. Uh, you don't often remember the Old Testament as well as you should. This is a tough one, really. It's Sleeping Beauty, who slept for over a hundred years until the kiss of the prince awakened her. How charming. It is charming, isn't it? <laughs> Sounds like a plug for beauty rest mattresses. All right. Let's see. The bright new cash register of Canada Dry now shows a total loss of $30. We'll have a brief word for Mr. Cross, and then I'll tell you of next week's guest. From time to time, we have told you that sparkling Canada dry water will still be bubbling merrily if left open in a refrigerator for 24 hours. Perhaps at first, this doesn't mean anything to you. But it should, and here's why. It means that with Canada dry water, you have a club soda that not only adds zest and just the right zest and sparkle to your favorite drink, but the zest and sparkle last right on down to the final sip no matter how long you may linger over it. That's why of all the club sodas on the market today, sparkling Canada dry water is the most popular. That's why you'll find it served at better hotels, clubs, and restaurants everywhere. And why we think you'll enjoy your favorite drink more with sparkling Canada dry water. Thank you, Mr. Milton Cross. And thank you, Mr. Elliot Roosevelt. Canada Dry thanks you particularly for helping us out this evening. Our next week's lineup will include our two regulars, Mr. John Kieran and Mr. Franklin P. Adams. And the first guest of honor, there'll be two, will be one who has appeared on this program before, I think uh, twice. The well-known short story writer, novelist, raconteur, and highly amateur golfer, 
Clarence Buddington Kelland. Our second guest of honor will be one who is very widely known as a naturalist, an ichthyologist, an explorer, and an investigator of the ocean's depths, and one who has written about all these things in a series of books of unvarying fascination. I refer, of course, to Mr. William Beebe. Now, to all you listeners, we say, please send your questions along. If you have a stumper to stump our board of almost infallible experts, let's have it. There are $5 in it for you if you use your question, and another 10 if we fail to answer it correctly. So you can win, as you can figure out very easily, $15 in all. Send your letters with questions to Information, Please, 1 Pershing Square, New York City. With summer days here, always keep a supply of Canada Dry ginger ale, sparkling water, lime ricky, and Tom Collins mixer on hand. You'll find the large family size economical, costing only 15 cents, plus usual bottle deposit. This is Milton Cross inviting you to join us now in a refreshing drink of sparkling Canada Dry. Good night, all. Information, please, was a quiz show, but with a clever twist. A normal game show would take members of the audience, put them on stage, ask them questions, and reward those who do, did well. But Information, Please instead would have a panel of experts, and audience members would ask them questions. If the experts failed, then the questioner got rewarded. The show was created by Dan Golenpal in 1938. Golenpal's first task was to assemble a panel of experts. He got Franklin Pierce Adams, who was someone who sounds like he should have been president. Instead, he was a writer and newspaper columnist. Then Clifton Fadiman joined the program as the host. Fadiman was a book editor for The New Yorker. Each week, Information Please would get four or five guest expert panelists. All eight members of the team, Golan Paul, Adams, Fadiman, and the five guest panelists, would split $400 each week for their efforts. People could mail in questions. The questioner got $2 if their question was asked and $5 if it stumped the panel. This money also came out of the $400. The show became a hit almost immediately. Within six months, John Kieran, a sports writer, was added as a regular panelist and became known as Mr. Know-It-All. Kieran had the widest range of knowledge from Shakespeare to sports. Then a third regular panelist was added, Oscar Levant. Only about a dozen questions were asked in each episode. This left plenty of time for the panelists to banter and ad-lib back and forth, which was the major appeal of the show. The panel correctly answered about three-quarters of the questions, which gave enough hope to those submitting questions that they would receive a larger prize for stumping the experts. And much like modern-day TV show Celebrity Jeopardy, the panel members would flub questions about their own field or even their own work. Elliot Roosevelt missed questions about Eleanor Roosevelt's newspaper column, and Mr. Know-It-All actually missed what date his wife's birth birthday was. In addition to experts, the show regularly got celebrities to appear on the panel. Gracie Allen, it was revealed, only played a ditzy blonde. In reality, she was quite intelligent. Fred Allen, Boris Karloff, Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles, and many other prominent figures appeared throughout the show until it ended in 1947. The premise of Comedy Central's Win Ben Stein's Money is very similar, and the atmosphere of the show is similar to NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. So wake up, America, and stump the experts. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week.